I'm Jeff Cohen. When Karen Schaefer began her journey to Jewish observance, she struggled to find tips and guidance from other people who had gone through similar journeys. After she became observant, she decided to start her own blog. It's called From With a Twist. She hopes it will help people who are beginning their own journeys, and she's here today to share her story. Karen, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Hi, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking some time with us, and I'm sure we will get to the blog later in the interview, but let's start at the beginning of your journey. So where were you born and raised? I am originally from Memphis, Tennessee, down south. Did you know anything about the Orthodox population when you were growing up there? I mean, I knew some people who were Orthodox. I went to a concert or pluralistic, but really the conservative day school. Um, and some of the people who went there went to the Orthodox school. So we would go sometimes for Purim or Simchat Torah just to see friends. So I knew a few people. Did you have a perspective on what it would be like to live an observant life compared to how you were being born and raised? I think that observance seemed just very restrictive to me as I was looking at it from the other side. Like my friends who were more observant than me, they could never hang out on Shabbat. They could never, there were things that they just couldn't do that were so integral to my life throughout childhood. Like I performed in theater a lot and all the shows were Friday night, Saturday day and Saturday night. Um, And so they couldn't participate in things like that or soccer or just a lot of the activities and Memphis doesn't have what the Northeast has with like a yeshiva league where there is a an outlet for people who are observant to play or play soccer or do theater whatever it is that you want to do it's like smack dab in the middle of the bible belt so there just was an, op- an opportunity I mean, the one Orthodox school would have just been playing against itself, I guess. <laughs> so let's continue on with your childhood. What were some of the customs you were doing within the home from a Jewish perspective? So that really chain, waxed and waned throughout my life, I guess. When I was younger, my mom was more strict. She wouldn't let us do certain activities on Saturday day. So I remember there was this dance class that I was in. I did ballet. And the next level up class was Thursday and Saturday morning. And so my mom just refused to let me take part in it. And it was a whole big argument lasted for weeks. And I ended up in this other dance class for like the level below, essentially. And I I didn't enjoy it, and so I actually quit dance. And I think that that really changed my mom's perspective on things. And after that, she started letting us do more activities. But we always had some semblance of Shabbos. We would light candles most weeks when I was younger. As I got older, we did that less and less. And we always had challah Shabbat morning as our breakfast. And most weeks, we went to synagogue but again, as I got older, we got more busy. We stopped going as much. Okay. And the shul you were going to was conservative, would you call it? Or conservadox? It was conservative, yes. Okay. So the people were driving there, and after going to shul, they would just go about their lives like a secular Jew. Exactly. Yes. 
So did you have a bat mitzvah? I did have a bat mitzvah. So I had a very strong Jewish identity, I would say, um, even if I didn't have as much practice. So I had gone to this day school where we learned half of the day Jewish studies, half of the day uh, secular studies. And I was very, very involved in my shul's like teen bat mitzvah class type thing. Um, so I had a bat mitzvah. I laned the whole parsha, the triennial version, Haf Torah, led services, and it was a very big moment for me. So did you know at the time when you were laning that like in the Orthodox world, only bar mitzvah boys would be doing that? It's not something that the girls would do? Or was it just natural because you had friends who were doing the same thing? I think that I knew there in Memphis, the Chabad organization did something called bat mitzvah club, where it was all girls in the same bat mitzvah class who would meet once a month or once every other month and she would tell us about spirituality and judaism and hasidism but also she would talk about kind of what a bat mitzvah would be for her children and in the chabad movement so i had an idea it it really upset me actually because i first of all i love leaning um i sing i have like a pretty good voice and i was fairly good at it, I think. Uh, and so the idea that somebody would tell me that I couldn't lane, that I couldn't do something that had been so important to me uh, was very upsetting to me. And I, I kind of said, like, I would never not do this. I imagine it played into your feelings about it being like a very restrictive life, like you were just saying earlier in the interview, and now you're sort of hearing about something else that maybe you can't do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... And not just not leaning. I mean, I had been to the Orthodox shul for a certain event, and the idea of sitting behind a mechitza on a regular basis was really abhorrent to me. My mom always called it a second-class citizen. Um, she had grown up going to an Orthodox shul. They had never been, you know, fully observant. Like they would drive to this shul, but um, they did go to an Orthodox shul in New Orleans when she was growing up. And she just said sitting behind a mechitza made her feel like a second-class citizen. And, you know, why would anybody ever want to do that? Yeah, my mother said the same thing when I was first becoming religious because her perspective was family should be together. And when the men and women get separated, she felt like the spotlight was on the men and the women were off to the side. And it was only later that she started to understand kind of the benefits of sort of letting each person focus on why they're there for the davening. And she didn't see that. At the beginning, she just saw it from like a gender equality standpoint. Yeah, I think it was similar with my mom as well. And also um, my family, it's my dad, my mom and myself and two sisters. So it's all girls and my dad. So when we would go, my dad would just be on his own. And my mom always felt really bad about that. So I read something else in your bio around the time of your bat mitzvah that you were studying with a rabbi and you learned something about milk and meat. And so tell me that story. There was a lot of commotion in the community actually around the time of my bat mitzvah. The shul split like maybe three months before. And I was very close to the person who had split away. They had been my teacher throughout my entire life. It was the the cantor of the shul. And the rabbi of the shul had just moved there maybe six or eight months before, maybe even a year. 
So as all of this commotion was going on, the rabbi had reached out to me because I was having my bat mitzvah at the main shul, the one that hadn't broken away. And he said, you know, I know that you haven't been with me for as long, but I want to be able to have a little bit more of a connection before your bat mitzvah. So how would you like to come learn with me? I said, all right, fine. So we started with the Parsha, which was Chaye Sarah, and he was trying to get me to delve deeper. I don't remember exactly the course of events, but it, we ended up having a pretty significant learning session where he brought all these sources for several weeks on not eating milk and meat together. Because I, I had asked him, it says don't eat milk and meat, but chicken isn't meat. And we had this whole very long conversation about it over several weeks. He brought all the sources. And in the end, he had kind of convinced me that absolutely I should not be eating beef and dairy together. But he kind of said in the end, you've made a good point. And if you really feel strongly that there's not going to be any mix up with chicken, then if if what's right for you is to eat chicken and milk, then eat chicken and milk. But from that time on, I never ate beef and milk again. So my, my family's from New Orleans. My mom's from New Orleans. So there's a lot of non-kosher food in New Orleans cooking. So my family had never eaten pork, wasn't allowed in the house. It was the big no-no. But we could have shellfish. We could have milk and meat together. And maybe a year or so before, I had cut out shellfish. And really, it was because I didn't like it. But I told my mom it was because it wasn't kosher, just like pork wasn't kosher. <laughs> so... By my bat mitzvah, I wasn't eating pork, wasn't eating shellfish, and wasn't mixing beef and milk together, uh, which caused a lot of drama in my household because now my mom couldn't give me tacos for dinner. But did you think that these steps you were taking were part of like a broader journey to becoming more observant? Or you just sort of like handpicked these few things and said, I, I just don't believe in doing these specific things, but I'm not necessarily looking to become more observant. So... I think that, you know, around my bat mitzvah time, I was just handpicking things a little bit. Like, I would see something when I would go to shul, like, I'd read the parsha and it be, would be like, don't do this. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'm not going to do that because it says directly, don't do that. But as I got older, kind of towards the end of high school and when I started college, I was starting to think about what life I would want for my future. And I really did want a life for my family and for my kids, where we were observant of halacha from a conservative standard. So a lot of my journey happened when I met people who kind of led me in one direction or another. Um, so I, I made a really good friend in college, really the first day of school, who was more conservative. He'd spent a year in Israel on the Nativ program. And he, you know, was looking for a friend who he could spend time with on Chagim and Shabbos and who would go to shul together. And so he kind of introduced me into the world of very strong conservative Judaism, which I hadn't really been a part of so much before. Like, I was involved with my shul, but that was it. And he had been involved in USY and Nativ and just all of these organizations and he taught me a lot about the conservative movement so I by my second year of college had decided you know I want to be Shomer Shabbos which means going to shul and only driving to and from shul I wanted to keep kosher to the conservative standard which is actually incredibly varied and there really is no one standard but 
I wasn't going to eat meat out so I could eat dairy out and I wasn't going to mix milk and meat and obviously no pork and shellfish. And I just got really hung up. I wanted my kids to wear a keep and titus. So that was a big hang up actually while I was dating was none of the conservative guys that I dated were willing to wear a keep and titus. And I felt like if their dad didn't wear it, why would my kids wear it? So I was kind of like drifting towards orthodoxy and I, I wanted to be conservadox. So essentially what I saw in the conservative rabbis' families around me. Right. So you just mentioned college. So just to kind of bring the story up to speed, where did you go to college and what were you looking to study? I went to college at Tulane in New Orleans and I was always going to go to medical school. So I was 100% medical school focused. And then I wanted to get a Jewish studies minor just because I was interested. And I took a really cool class. It was about Maimonides and the sources or things that my teacher believed that Maimonides had read in order to write his works and similarities between his works and Plato and Aristotle. And it was a really, really interesting class. It was my first introduction to Maimonides, who I now call Rambam, but for this class, it's Maimonides for sure. So I I did that class. I actually took four classes with this professor and I ended up writing a thesis on how I believed that Dante in the book Dante's Inferno had actually based his entire book on the Rambam's Guide to the Perplexed. And I also took uh, a year of Hebrew, so I was conversational in my Hebrew abilities. So I would imagine with all these steps you're taking in Judaism, the things you're learning, somewhere along the way you start thinking, I should probably get to Israel at some point and see what's going on over there. So did a trip to Israel factor in? Yeah, so I'd actually gone to Israel just before my bat mitzvah for a week with my family. I loved it. My best friend growing up lived in Israel. She had been in the U.S. for about two years and then moved back to Israel. So I had very strong connections to Israel and and with the conservative movement also, there's a very Zionistic aspect. So I grew up very strongly loving Israel and wanting to go there. So I went for the first time on my own with Birthright in college, I think my first year. And Actually, to be honest, I had a terrible time. I I was on this trip. It was a, I think it was a Chabad run trip, but it was a trip with students from another school. I only knew one or two people and they all kind of knew each other. And the thing that upset me the most is that it was a trip for, you know, younger kids. We were all 18, 19. And there was very little like Jewish programming allowed because they didn't want to scare anybody off. And I remember on... Shabbos, I decided, you know, I'm going to keep Shabbos while I'm in Israel because, I mean, of course, I'm in Israel. Like, it's so easy here. But they didn't even set up a place for us to daven on this trip. And we were in Tveria for the first Shabbos, and I was just, like, so upset. I didn't have anywhere to daven. We were at this hotel, and I ended up crashing this Sephardi bar mitzvah, so I would have a place to daven, this, like, Orthodox (laughs) Sephardi bar mitzvah, and I had no idea what was going on. I was like, the Torah doesn't look like I've ever seen, like, people are, like, cheering, and I, I don't really know what's going on. I don't even know where they are in the service, but I'm here. I left that trip saying, okay, I've got to get back here on my own and do something the way that I want to do it. So the summer before medical school, I went on a program called Jewel. I had no idea what it was. All I knew was that it was a women's only program and that it was 
you know, three or four weeks and that we would be living in Jerusalem. And I just kind of signed up for it. So I went on this program. It's, I think I, I would call it a cure of program. Like all of us were not observant and it definitely seemed like the goal of this program was to make us more observant. And I remember my rabbi before I left <laughs> saying, don't come back wearing skirts. That's what he said. <laughs> don't come back wearing skirts. And I said, of course not. I would never. <laughs> so I went on this program and I, I had my guard up the whole time. And there were a few things that really inspired me. But for the most part, I kind of scoffed at it. But it was kind of, I think, the start of my journey towards becoming more observant even though I wasn't ready for it at the time. So during this time, I really, really connected with Israel, with Yerushalayim especially, and with the Kotel. We were there almost every day, and I felt really inspired there. And at this time, I was having issues personally. Um, I liked to gossip a lot, and it kept getting me into trouble, and I didn't know how to fix it. And I was at the hotel one day during the trip. I, I didn't get along with some of the girls and there was some drama. And so I was there. I was crying, I remember. And I was looking for something to comfort me. And so I davened at the hotel. And I remember <laughs> I, I davened on a regular basis in New Orleans uh, once a week, twice a week, three, you know, three times. Not every day. Um, but I remember during the Shimona Estray, I would stop after, you know, take three steps and bow, and then I would just stop. And I didn't even realize that there was a whole paragraph after it. And so I was just kind of reading, and I get to this paragraph that I don't know, and I'm like, hmm, I wonder what this is. And I started reading, and the second line is, Notsar Lashoni Mura. And I'm like, wow. This is so relevant to me. This is exactly what I was struggling with so much. And I just broke down. I was sobbing. Like you see people at the hotel sobbing. That was me. And I started saying this paragraph with just like very, very much meaning every single time I davened. And I started davening Shimona Esrei every day, at least once, if not twice, just so I could say this paragraph and have this lead up into what I'm trying to change about myself. And I, I noticed a change in myself that I did stop this behavior that I was trying to stop. And so I felt more and more connected and I felt like, of course, Hashem is real. Hashem is real. Hashem is around me. I, I just really had this, this feeling that every action in my life, I was being directed by Hashem. And I just knew like whatever was going to happen was going to happen. And I just needed to do my best and I would end up where I was meant to be, even if it wasn't where I wanted to be. And didn't a certain special someone come into your life on this trip, not only in terms of <laughs> someone you're going to start dating, but also helping kind of continue your evolving perspective on Judaism? So this was the last summer. We, we call it the last summer in medical school. It's the summer between first and second year. And I was like, I had to go to Israel. And my parents were so against this. They're like, you need to do something to help yourself with residency, do some research, scribe worker shadowing or something that will help you. And I'm like, no, I'm going to Israel. So they kind of compromised. They said I could not go on my own. They didn't think it was safe. And so I started looking for programs. And for weeks and weeks, I was like scouring Google, like 
trips to Israel, research programs in Israel, and there was just nothing. And then I found this one link to the YU Bar Ilan summer research program, and I couldn't figure out how to apply, and I couldn't even figure out if I was eligible. So I just emailed the person who ran, ran the program, and I didn't hear from him for a while. And I remember I went to Shul, and I was like, all right, Hashem, I made this vow, so now I have to go help me get to Israel. Like, you have to help me. Please help me get to Israel. And the next Monday, I get an email that says, like, hi, I I don't remember exactly, but, you know, you know, we'd love to have you on this program, but I don't think you'd be a fit because everybody on this program is from. And he used, I think he used the word from, and I had to look it up. (laughs) So I said, you know, I don't care. I can make it work. I just want to be in Israel and I want to be on this program. It sounds perfect. It's research. So it, you know, will help me. So we did an interview and he said, okay, I think this will work. And he emailed me a couple of weeks before the trip, like, by the way, everybody here wears skirts and knee length and elbow length shirts. And we want you to fit in and also not make anybody uncomfortable. So can you make sure that you have that? it made me really nervous. Like I was okay until that point. And then I went shopping for skirts and I was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? How am I going to fit in for six weeks here? So I went on this program and I was absolutely stuck on this idea that I was not going to come back wearing these skirts that I went with. I even said, I'm going to leave them there. Like I'm not coming back with this. I wanted to be respectful. I didn't want to offend anybody, but I wanted to stand up for my beliefs. So on this program, sometimes people would kind of ask questions about my upbringing. So they kind of got the idea that I wasn't from, but people kind of let it go. And as the summer went on, people started to learn a little bit more about me and realized it. But I kind of kept it to myself until we went to the light festival in the old city. And it was me and another girl and a guy. And at some point, we kind of got into talking deeply about ourselves and our beliefs. And I told him, you know, I lay in Torah. And I thought it was like, he was just going to be so offended by the idea. I was like, ready for it. And he's like, that's really cool that you lay in. And I was like, so impressed. We got to talking and we talked that night until like 1 or 2 a.m. kind of about orthodoxy and conservatism and his upbringing and my upbringing. And a lot of what he talked about with his upbringing just sounded so beautiful. I mean, and I just didn't have the same joy in Shabbat that he was expressing. And we we started talking kind of every night. And as the time went on, we started arguing. I was arguing from the conservative perspective and he was arguing from the orthodox perspective. I would kind of tell him, I understand that this is what the Torah says is don't light a fire and driving is lighting a fire, but there's got to be joy in Shabbat as well. And if Shabbat is making you miserable, then why should you keep the laws? I'd had a really hard time before when I tried to keep Shabbat. It was very isolating because there weren't a lot of people around me. And he eventually said something that just really changed my perspective. He said, do you believe in Hashem? I said, yes, of course. He said, well, do you believe that the Torah came from Hashem? I said, yeah, I think I do. And he said, okay, so it's right there. Hashem says in the Torah, don't light a fire on Shabbat. And that's what he wants. And I'm like, I've got no answer. (laughs) And so at that point, I just 
realized that I felt I felt like I was living kind of a double life or almost that I was hypocritical when I believed all of this and yet I felt like my will and my beliefs mattered more than what Hashem said he wanted. In a second, everything had changed. And at that point, I'm like, all right, I guess I'm going to become observant. So we have this guy who convinces you to change your whole perspective from conservadox to wanting to be observant. But that's not the only thing that he changes. He also seems to convince you that the two of you could be a match. So this is a pretty persuasive person. So how does that story develop? So actually, I think that the reason we were able to have these conversations was he felt like I was just completely off limits because he wasn't going to marry somebody who wasn't from. That was just not in his future and in his plan for life. But because I was not an option for him as far as dating, ending up together, or any of it, we started having these deep conversations and realized that we really did like each other. So neither of us knows exactly when we decided we would date. We know what day it was. It was the Shabbos that we both by chance ended up going to Katamon that Shabbos. I went to the head of my lab's house. He went back to yeshiva for Shabbos for the weekend. And he helped me get there on the bus before Shabbos. He helped me figure out where I was going. And we said, you know, why don't we meet tomorrow and take a walk together? So we took a walk. We walked from Katamon all the way to the old city. And during this time, we had lots of conversations. And I told him, like, that I had decided that I would become from. And all of a sudden, it was like, well, then are we going to date? Like, should we date? And he he didn't want me to become from for him. He was very clear about that. He wanted me to make the decision for myself, for what I wanted on my own. He didn't want to be responsible because if I decided I didn't like it later, he didn't want me to resent it. So sometime during this walk, we decided that we did want to date and I, I had already decided I was going to be from. And this was quite a shock to people on the program. Again, because by that point, people had kind of realized that I wasn't from. And we even asked the the Avbayat on the program if we should date, even though we'd already decided to date. And he said, you know, right person, wrong time is wrong person. And we're like, well, we already decided. So I guess it's not the wrong time. So we had started dating and I'd started learning and started like changing being more observant and it was just so many changes all at one time and I remember calling my mom from Israel I was like at a bus stop and I'm like mom just so you know I'm gonna be more observant I'm gonna be religious when I get home and she just said okay and so I was like all right I guess she's fine with it wait let me ask you a question about this you went on this trip saying that you were going to like leave your from type clothes there. And over the course of this trip, you get to the point of saying, not only do I want to be observant, but I've actually met a guy and this could mean starting an observant life with this person. And so when you're calling your mom, are you giving her that whole story or is it, are you giving her a little piece of it because you were afraid of how she might react if you said just how much had changed during this time in Israel? So I think I just gave her a little piece of it. I just told her, like, I want to be more observant. And a week after we had started dating, my friend, her name is Adira, Ari and I had gone on this hike north of Sfat. And we ran out of water, almost died. 
and Ari saved both of us by running to the end of the hike and getting water and bringing it back. I had heat stroke. We we really almost died. He, you know, did this incredible thing and saved us. And I kind of decided that day, like, I'm going to marry him. <laughs> We've been dating one week, but I'm going to marry him. I called my mom after and I told her this whole story and I told her that I was going to marry him. And she that's when I think she realized that I was actually serious about being orthodox, like in that moment. So what happens when you come back? So I was really scared about going back because I was also worried that I would get to New Orleans and kind of fall back into my old patterns. And I asked Ari when I was going back, I, I said, like, I need to go slow taking on mitzvot. I can't just like go back and take on everything at once. I'm not going to make it. I I will drop everything if I do that. What mitzvah is like the one mitzvah that I should start first? Should I start, you know, dressing more sneas? Should I start keeping Shabbos? Should I start keeping kosher? And he's like, I think Shabbos, it's kind of the easiest, like keeping kosher. You'd have to figure out how to kosher your kitchen and figure out how to get kosher food. But, you know, keeping Shabbos is just a decision you make every week. And to me, Shabbos was one of the hardest things because I tried it a couple of times and failed. But he just kept encouraging me to call the Chabad family, who I was close to at that time, I was pretty close to them, and ask if I could sleep over at their house because I lived too far to walk. And I called them and I thought they were going to say no way. And they ended up saying, yeah, of course you can stay over. You can stay over as much as you like. And I ended up staying at their house almost every Shabbos for a year. Honestly, without that, I don't think I would have been able to stay on this path because I had I had a community that way. They had graduate students over for dinner every Shabbat. I went to shul with them and I played with the kids and they had older daughters who ended up being my very good friends. There were a couple of other from people around who would come over Shabbat afternoon and we'd play games and I just like because I had these people supporting me I was able to take on that mitzvah and keep it going and once I had taken on Shabbat I was able to slowly add other things. So I I had those two mitzvot and I slowly slowly added on kashrut. That was incredibly difficult just in New Orleans. There's not a lot of resources. Koshering my kitchen was difficult. And I had a roommate who wasn't Jewish who would like inevitably wash the pots wrong. (laughs) And as time went on, I really slowly took on mitzvot. So how did Ari help you through this? Like, where is he living at this time? Because you mentioned you were going to this Kabat house for like a year where is he living and how are you progressing towards marriage given your situation? So he's actually in college in Ithaca at Cornell at this time. And I think mainly the way that he helped me through this the most was every Shabbos, I'd come back for the first like six or eight weeks and I would just cry and bawl because I'd made some stupid mistake. Like I turned off the light in the bathroom or moved something muksa or I don't even know. And he was like, it's okay, you're learning and they know you're learning and they're helping you. They're not expecting you to be perfect and know all of this already. So he was just like comforting me and supporting me once a month. He's like, you're not doing this for me, right? You're doing this for yourself. So he was just kind of there supporting me and encouraging me, but not being too forceful with it because he didn't want it to be a situation where I resented him for making me go through all this. 
And how did his family feel about where this was headed, knowing that your background was not someone who was raised like the typical kind of person maybe they had in mind for him to marry? So I am incredibly lucky in my in-laws and in the family that he was raised with. Spoiler alert. Um, we got married. <laughs> <laughs> they are incredibly welcoming people. I would call them if I had a question about, you know, Kashrut and I didn't want them to be upset that I wasn't from. So when I first would go visit them, I was like really nervous, like, oh my gosh, I'm going to do the wrong thing. And over time, like they're just so loving and accepting and they just wanted him to marry somebody who would make him happy. And so I'm really grateful for that. It wasn't until like wedding planning that things became a little bit more complicated. <laughs> but you had a regular like traditional Orthodox wedding, like at that point when you got married, had you progressed enough that it felt comfortable to have that kind of wedding? Yeah, I mean, so Ari wouldn't get engaged until I was fully Shomer Mitzvot. I wanted to get engaged so badly like before and he's like, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. And it was not until I started keeping like fully kosher that he that he finally proposed. And I kind of thought that that was what he was waiting for, but he didn't like give me any ultimatums. He just didn't do it until then. But I really wanted my wedding to like fit in with those of like the Orthodox people that I knew at that point. And so I worked really hard on that, but I also really wanted my family to be comfortable. So it was really walking a fine line. And my family, just going back, my family had a really hard time with me becoming more observant. They were resistant to it. It caused a lot of arguments between me and my mother. She felt like I was limiting myself and wasn't going to have the life that she wanted me to have and that she had always dreamed of for me because I was going to limit myself so much. And it took her a long time to feel more comfortable with it. And I, I don't think that she is fully pleased with it. Like it's not, it's still not what she would want for me, but she's much more okay with it now. But for the wedding, there was a lot of tension, especially about where we would have the wedding, because traditionally it would be in Memphis, right? That's where I'm from. But it's very hard to have a fully kosher wedding in Memphis. There's, you know, one or two caterers. So if you don't like your their food, you're out of luck. That's who you've got. And same with, you know, venues and just everything was more difficult. And we ended up getting married in New Jersey. So help me understand now, sort of fast forward to you were in medical school looking to become a doctor. So you have this Orthodox wedding. Ari's in Cornell. So now what's the life that you built together after the wedding? So he had graduated before we got married and he was moving to New Orleans. So we got married and then moved to New Orleans together. I mean, I was already there, but he moved to New Orleans. It was a little bit difficult because he had always been in a place where there was just really a lot of Jewish life. I mean, he grew up in Teaneck and he went to Israel and then he was at school at Cornell, which doesn't have the biggest community, but it's very vibrant, very involved. They have a Jewish dorm, a Jewish dining hall, Jewish shul. So he moved to New Orleans and realized like part of why it had been so difficult for me is just because it's so much smaller of a community. There aren't as many resources. And I think he understood a little bit more why it took me so long to become fully observant. So did you make plans to want to leave there eventually, thinking we have to get to a place that has more of an infrastructure for us as he's experiencing what New Orleans is like? So we kind of like hadn't talked about it. When I applied to residency, I applied to a lot of places just all over the, all over the country. 
anywhere that had like a Jewish community of like 10,000 or more, I applied there. So we had a huge range and I ended up matching in New York at Jacoby in the Bronx, right next to Einstein. And we like picked up and moved and it was just a complete, like it's so different here. It's like a different community, a different experience. I can go to most stores and get a reasonable amount of kosher food. It's so much easier, I feel like, here than it was there. Um, but I'm I'm glad that it was there that I became more observant because in dealing with that a little bit of hardship, I feel like I have so much more flexibility now as to where I go. And I don't feel like I have to stay in New York in order to have a Jewish life. I think that I can have a Jewish life mostly anywhere I go. And so where along the way did the From With a Twist blog start? Is this from college, medical school, when you got to New York? Where did, where did you begin it and why did you do it? So I started it kind of when I came home from Israel after I went on the Bar Ilan trip. I was looking for resources for people who were becoming from looking for, I mean, just anything, like where to get Snea's clothing, how to kosher a kitchen. And I just couldn't find a lot. There was a lot out there for people who were converting, but it was a little too simplified for me. Like I, I felt like I was starting from stage zero when, you know, I had a pretty vibrant Jewish background, just not Orthodox. So I started this blog to try and have a place for people who are going on this journey so they don't feel quite so alone. Like I kept writing through most of medical school and I haven't actually written anything since I moved to New York um, and started residency or I haven't published anything. I've written quite a bit because I just, I don't know, I feel like it's so much easier here. I don't have the same struggle that I had before and I don't know how to be as helpful when I'm here. So what advice would you give to somebody who's listening to your story and maybe is living in a place that doesn't have the kind of setup that you're now experiencing in the New York area, but they're listening to your story and saying, yeah, I want to take on more, but I don't have everything around me to make it happen. I feel like I'm on my own. Like, how can they stay connected? So I think that like the most important thing that I learned through this entire journey is that it's not all or nothing. You can take on as much as you can in the situation that you're in, and it's not wrong that you're not taking on more. Like Hashem put you in that situation where you are and gave you the resources that he gave you to do your best with, and your best is enough in these situations. And so for you personally and with Ari, like what's on the bucket list from a Jewish perspective over the next few years? I think that right now we're just trying to figure out where we want to settle and, you know, raise children and what kind of Jewish lifestyle we want because neither of us is so excited about this kind of in-town New York lifestyle. Like it's a little too much for both of us, I think. And so we are looking to settle eventually after residency and after he finishes his PhD somewhere that's a little more out of town. So we're trying to find, you know, where that will be. We still have to figure out like the finer details of what we want our Jewish life to be. I'm still not necessarily comfortable with everything about the Orthodox world. And I'm, you know, still trying to figure out what that means for me and us and our kids. At the very beginning, you used a word to describe Orthodox Judaism, and that word was restrictive. 
So that was at the very beginning of the journey. So now that you're kind of on the other side of it, you're still growing and changing, but with everything that you've been through, what, what's a word you would use to describe observant Judaism today? I think that orthodoxy is filled with possibilities. There are restrictions, but those restrictions aren't limiting. Beautifully said. So I actually, when I was thinking about this question for myself, I, like you, started with the word restrictive. And now I use the word freedom, particularly to describe Shabbos, just the day where I'm off my phone, off the pressures of work and like really present with my family. Yeah, I love Shabbos now. I mean, people say this a lot um, after they've gone through this change, but I just find it so peaceful and I just need it. I can't function without it. Like as a doctor, there are times when I do have to go in on Shabbos. Like that's, you know, the life of a doctor. And I, I hate those weeks. Like I really... Like, I don't know how people don't have Shabbos, like how so much of the world doesn't have a day when they turn their phone off and disconnect. All right. So let's jump into the lightning round to finish off the interview. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. First question. With all the places you've lived and traveled, Memphis and New Orleans and Israel and New York, what's your favorite kosher restaurant? Ooh. I think my favorite kosher restaurant is uh, actually Estihana and Teaneck. Okay. So for our listeners who don't know the restaurant, tell them what kind of food they serve. They serve... Asian fusion. And I'm not going to say that it's like necessarily the most authentic to what I've had when I didn't keep kosher, but it like is very diverse and it just tastes phenomenal. And then you mentioned on your trip to Israel, you had this really significant experience at the Kotel. But besides that, what's the most ins inspirational place you've been to when you were in Israel? I always just found Sfat to be very inspirational. Just even stepping onto the ground there, I felt more spiritual. And you mentioned hiking in your story, and I understand from your bio that's something you enjoy doing. So what's a place you've hiked that you think has just like unbelievable scenery? The Nepali coast in Hawaii. That's the best hiking I've ever done. It, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's a zigzag. So every like 20 feet, you're at a different outlook and a different view. Okay. And so I also saw in your bio, you enjoy snorkeling and scuba diving. So what's like the coolest fish or thing you ever saw underwater? Coral is generally beautiful, but my favorite fish are um, parrotfish. They're these really vibrant, beautiful fish. What makes them so beautiful? They just have colors that you wouldn't expect to find in wild creatures, like purples and pinks and greens and just, I mean, really stunning colors. And they're huge. Got it. Okay, last question. Given your connection to New Orleans, what is your favorite New Orleans-style Shabbos dish to prepare? Oh, so I like to make crockpot gumbo. So it's essentially New Orleans chalent. I'm not surprised. That was like the perfect combination of New Orleans and living a religious life. So well said and a good one to close on. You are out of the lightning round. And Karen, I want to thank you for joining me on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so much. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our executive producer is Rabbi David Pardo. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit taklismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at taklismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys.
Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.